Greetings, we're Technically a Conversation, a podcast for curious people by curious people. Every week, we take turns presenting a new topic, and the other host has no idea what the topic will be. We strive to educate in a way that's loose and fun. Our topics are all over the place, from light and funny to dark and sometimes spooky. Some of the topics we've covered include urban legends, civil rights activists, vampires, pop culture icons, the supernatural and occult, spies and espionage, science and astronomy, and other weird and random things. If any of these topics interest you, give our podcast a shot. Listen and subscribe at technicallyaconversation.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Parental advisory, we might use strong language. Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm host John Henson, and this week, continuing our Halloween spooky paranormal themed month, uh, we're going to start a two part series on aliens. Um, talked about, I think, like a couple of like specific bigger stories around aliens so far. I know we did Barney and Betty Hill um, to either start the year or close out last year, or whatever. Um, but here, I'm going to talk about some famous UFO sightings that have allegedly occurred. Um, and like, look, if you want to take it literally, yes, a UFO doesn't necessarily have to mean alien. It could just be a thing that you didn't know what it was that was flying around the air. I mean, look, if you're if you don't know what drones are and you see a drone flying around, that's a UFO. All right. So it's kind of subjective, but uh, looking at four stories today, uh, stories of Kenneth Arnold, the Maury Island incident, the Charles Witted encounter, uh, the Gorman dogfight, and the Lubbock Light. So five stories, not four, but let's jump into it. On June 24th, 1947, Kenneth Arnold was flying to Yakima, Washington uh, for whatever business that he did. Um, Along the way, he learned about a $5,000 reward for any information that was relating to a missing Marine Corps C-46 transport plane that had crashed near Mount Rainier. Uh, Despite flying around the area, though, for a couple of hours, Arnold didn't end up seeing anything, so he just gave up and kept flying on. But... As he directed himself back towards Yakima, uh, Arnold was startled by a very bright flash of light. Uh, He first thought that another plane was dangerously close to him, but he only saw a DC-4 about 15 miles away. Uh, Roughly 30 seconds later, Arnold saw some more, just a, a series of bright flashes over Mount Rainier. Um, initially, like he thought it must just be the light reflecting off of his windshield, um, or maybe light, you know, reflecting off of the, the snow cap on the mountain. Um, but after moving the plane from side to side, he cleaned off his glasses. He even rolled down a side window to see if things would kind of adjust or go away, but they didn't, the lights were very real and they weren't going away. Um, as best as he could tell, these lights were coming from multiple aircraft flying in a formation. And he watched as they flew down along Mount Rainier and flipped erratically, which is how he described it, 
and then continued to give off these very brilliant flashes of light. And as he got kind of closer, or you know, or as they flew closer, however it was, he could tell that some of the aircraft were crescent-shaped, while others were kind of convex and so thin that they were almost invisible. Um, obviously, at this point, Arnold began feeling really uncomfortable. And he initially thought that, like, he might be witnessing a test flight of, like, a new secret military aircraft, which I like this guy. He's very logical. He's going through all of the logical explanations for this. Um, but he calculated their speed being somewhere between 1,200 and 1,700 miles per hour, which at the time was way faster than anything the government had. Um, you know, like jets, you know, even like the fastest jets at that time were topping out at roughly 500 miles per hour. I mean, remember, this is 1947 we're talking about. Um, when Arnold eventually landed in Yakima, he began telling everybody what he had seen. Um, and then after flying to an air show in Oregon, Arnold was interviewed by several reporters um, who had found out about what he had saw. And they took his accounts very seriously. Uh, once the stories were published, Arnold began receiving calls and letters from all sorts of people who were sharing um, some of their own encounters. Some thought that this was the start of the apocalypse, because of course, and some thought that he had seen aliens. And that I might have been like the first time that Arnold kind of began to entertain that idea. Um, by July of that year, Arnold had finally just come to believe that the lights and the craft that he had seen were extraterrestrial. And he told several outlets, including the Chicago Times, all of this. Um, even more, uh, a prospector named Fred Johnson corroborated Arnold's story with Army Air Force Intelligence and claimed that he saw six of the lights around the same time that Arnold did on June 24th. Arnold claimed to see nine. Uh, Fred Johnson said he saw six. Okay, there's a little discrepancy there. But um, at that point, Army Air Force Intelligence opened an investigation and found another eyewitness, uh, a member of the Forest Service who was on fire watch at a tower 20 miles south of Yakima, um, who corroborated it. And then two other people came forward to report what they had seen. On July 4th, a United States Air, or, uh, sorry, a United Airlines crew, which that that that's crazy to me. Also, like totally aside, like United Airlines, like the passenger plane, like they're flying in the 1940s. Like I don't as much as I like airplanes, I don't actually know when passenger, uh, you know, commuter air air flights started and like what airlines were around, you know, like I don't know. And like, what was that like in the 1930s and 40s when this, like maybe when this happened? I don't know. What was that like? How crazy was that? I don't know. There's just something like I've never looked into, but like anytime I hear talking of people talking about taking a flight, like just re regular people, like non-military flights, I just like think like how insane that is. Like, Cause like, I usually just think of like passenger air, air flying starting in like the 1960s, you know, with like the Piedmont airlines and everybody smoking <laughs> in the cabin, which is also insane. Anyway, I don't know. That was a little, little aside. Um, but on July 4th in 19, whatever it was, 47, um, a United airlines crew flying over Idaho saw another set of objects with flashing lights. And these objects, kept pace with their plane for 15 minutes before they then just completely disappeared. And 
when Kenneth Arnold heard about this sighting, he then met up with the pilot, Captain Emil Smith, and Arnold wholly believed that they had both seen something similar. And then the group met with Army Air Force uh, officers a week later to file the report. And throughout all of Arnold's interviews and reports, the military was adamant that they did not have any aircraft in the Mount Rainier area at the time of his sighting, which, I mean, if it's classified information, of course, they're going to say they didn't. Um, The same day that Arnold and Smith met with Army Air Force intelligence, eight flashing lights were then seen over Tulsa, Oklahoma. This time, however, someone was able to take a picture of it, which showed the lights, but like they weren't flying in any kind of discernible pattern over the city. Um, This photographer, Enlo Gilmore, sent the photos to the Daily World and noted that the objects resembled catcher's mitts, like the baseball glove. Um, And then through triangulation, the lights were estimated or Gilmore estimated that the lights were moving at approximately 1700 miles per hour, which is the same calculation that Arnold had come up with the month before during his encounter. So following Arnold's report on this, hundreds of UFO sightings began pouring in from all over the world. Um, In 1947, over 850 sightings were reported from the United States and Canada alone, including the famous Roswell incident. Um, And while the government debunked several sightings as misidentified weather balloons, several people insisted that some of the other sightings were real. And look, you know, like, so at this point, you know, I kind of want to talk about the the concept of hysteria and how people feel the need to be a part of something. You know, it's 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 we've seen this happen a lot, you know, especially um, with some of the um, like ha- for some reason, this happens a lot in like England and London where um, like a, an attack or a murder will take place. And then all of a sudden, like all of these other people will come forward and be like, yeah, I was attacked too, but they just want to get attention and they want to feel like they're a part of something, you know? Um, Because here's the thing. Around this time, you know, in the late 40s, when all of a sudden all of these new sightings are happening, the United States was experimenting with nuclear weapons and the horrors of World War II were still very fresh in everyone's minds. I mean, it was a very strange time to be alive. Like, you have just, like you've basically entered into the future in 1947, which sounds crazy right now, just considering how archaic all of that technology was. But like, you think about it, you know, sure. You had planes, you had cars, but like shortly after world war two, technology really started beginning to really started to begin to extremely move fast. That's a weird way to phrase that. But, um, you know, the whole world had just gotten into war. You know, you had this one crazy dictator who had just tried to annihilate an entire group of people. You had uh, another country who was attempting to take over the world. And then you had the United States who then put a stop to it by unleashing this weapon with such destructive capabilities that no one had ever seen before to stop all of it and no one knows what's next because like, yeah, the war's over, but man, tensions are still super high. And with that, you know, governments all over the world were testing the boundaries of science often in secret and people had no idea what to expect. And, and each new day brought new fears of a new nuclear war between the United States and mostly Russia 
which again, just an extravagant leap forward in the technologies and the way of life that had been used in previous decades. And look, after all, like this was still less than 20 years after the Great Depression, where millions of people had lost everything. Like you're less than 20 years removed from a time when people had no money. You know, there was a big, you know, the Dust Bowl famine, all that kind of stuff, like kind of all going on at once. And then now less than 20 years later, it's like completely different. Um, you know, there was all this new technology that had already been proven capable of wiping entire cities off the map, but also making everyone's lives easier. You know, not the same thing, obviously, but two different things. And so when Kenneth Arnold's sighting was published, the thought of Earth being invaded by aliens was somehow a better alternative than people thinking that the United States or Russia or another country was testing a super secret weapon or a super secret aircraft right above their heads. It just, I, I don't know. It could have just been more comforting. It could have been more logical because like, again, people just weren't used to technology advancing at such a rapid rate. And so, you know, kind of how it works, like is in times of high stress, like delusion starts to set in and an individual's reality can easily become warped and cause them to believe that things, um, you know, that otherwise aren't even remotely true are actually taking place. You know, people didn't want to believe that, you know, the United States government was doing all of this undercover work at secret military bases. You know, that's why it was easier to just make the jump to believing that aliens were visiting earth. And although it's like far more unfathomable, it was easier to believe that than arguably being, you know, then arguably the, like the biggest controlling entity in their lives, the United States government was then just wielding some unknown amount of power, even more power that they ever knew about, you know? And so again, people wanted to, you know, believe that those same fireside chats, kitties got the bag again. It's just, I, I've lost the war at this point, you know? Anyway, um, but people like people still just wanted to believe that like the same fireside chats that President Roosevelt had been delivering was as transparent as the government possibly could ever be. And that there wasn't anything secret going on that they couldn't possibly know about. But I don't know. Maybe that's what the government wanted everyone to think. You know, maybe the timing was coincidental and that. In addition to the end of World War II and the nuclear arms race between the United States and Russia, world governments also then had to deal with an influx of extraterrestrial visitors. Who knows? Um, the only evidence um, for that being the case is the various and often highly questionable sightings and reports that came to light in the following years. And in next week's episode, um, when we talk about actual abductions, you'll kind of see this pattern where... Uh, alien, you know, these people claim that aliens came to visit Earth to warn them of the of the dangers of nuclear war. Huh, that's interesting timing, isn't it? So, I don't know. We'll see. But um, three days after Kenneth Arnold's sighting near Mount Rainier, so we're kind of going back a little bit, uh, two harbor patrolmen named Fred Christman and Harold Dahl were on a work boat uh, near Maury Island in the Puget Sound in Washington State. The bag, man, I can't. Like, even if I have headphones in, I can still hear it. And then that makes me think that you hear it. And then it's just distracting for everyone. So, you know, are you done? Okay, thanks. Ready for his third nap of the day already. It's not even noon. Um, 
but yeah, so so these two guys, uh, Fred Christman and Harold Dahl, working on a on a boat near Maury Island in the Puget Sound in Washington State, uh, when they saw six donut shaped objects flying through the sky, and then one of those aircrafts deployed something that, according to these two men, looked like white metal into their boat, like it fell out of the aircraft, dropped into their boat. The substance, um, when it hit, actually broke another worker's arm and killed a dog that was on board. Um, when the two men arrived back on shore, Dahl was approached by a man in a black suit who then told Dahl not to tell anyone about what had happened. Um, however, Kenneth Arnold somehow learned of this incident and met Chrisman and Dahl to talk about it. Arnold then took their story to an uh, AAF officer, Army Air Force officer, who then conducted his own investigation. So, you know, essentially like after Kenneth Arnold has his first encounter. He becomes like the spokesman for everyone else. And he's doing all of his own investigation and reporting. And he's kind of the middleman between these people and the air force to try to figure out what's going on. Um, The army air force concluded that the metal that had fallen into the boat was nothing more than aluminum and wasn't a real threat, but coincidentally, or as part of a cover up. Um, the AAF officers who told Arnold about the aluminum died in a car crash on their way back to California. Hmm. Interesting. Um, following the death of those investigators, the FBI then opened their own investigation into the incident and they concluded, um, whether by Dahl's actual honesty or through forced admittance that the entire thing was a hoax and that Dahl and Chrisman had hoped to make a deal with fantasy magazine in Chicago for exclusive rights to the story. And so that little detail is often left out. You know, it's, you know, more, most people like hear about the Maury Island incident. Oh, this, these, you know, aircraft UFOs flew over something fell out and it killed people and a dog but then they later admitted that it was a hoax and that they were just trying to capitalize so were they who knows you know it's like the way these stories get preserved it's frustrating because you know who do you believe um moving on to uh, around 2.45 a.m. on the morning of July 24th, 1948 Clarence uh, Chiles and John Witted I don't I think I I think I said Charles before. I did say Charles Witted. It's Chiles Witted. Sorry. Um, Chiles Witted and John, or Clarence Chiles and John Witted, there we go, um, were carrying a group of passengers in an Eastern Airlines Douglas DC 3 over Montgomery, Alabama, when they noticed a dull red glow ahead and moving towards them. Um, the skies were mostly clear. The moon was shining bright. So the light did not make any sense given the circumstances. And within a couple of seconds, the object had closed in on them. Uh, Chile's kind of pointed out that it was just a new army jet that was flying by. Um, And then the object then blasted past their plane with a massive flame burning from the other end of the craft. Um, As quickly as it had appeared, the object then disappeared up into the clouds. And according to both the pilots, this craft did not have any wings but had two rows of windows that were filled with a bright light. Uh, The men both agreed that the object was at least 100 feet long and shaped like a cigar. Uh, One passenger, C.L. McKelvey, also reported seeing a bright flash of light zip by his window. Uh, Once the plane landed in Atlanta, the pilots reported what happened to the Air Force, and a short time later, members of Project Sign, which was the first of three research studies of UFOs commissioned by the government, arrived to interview both men. 
the investigators determined that based on the flight path, the object would have also passed over Macon, Georgia. And when an Air Force crew chief at Robbins Air Force Base near Macon confirmed seeing a bright light pass over the base shortly after the Chile Witted report, several members of the Air Technical Intelligence Center were kind of spooked by it because nothing had, you know, there were no there were no flights scheduled to be flying from like Montgomery over Macon, Georgia, Warner Robbins, Georgia, you know, and that. And so, um, Project Sign investigators then sent uh, an estimate of the situation report to Air Force Chief of Staff Hoyt S. Vandenberg, who concluded that the craft and several others that Project Sign had been investigating were interplanetary objects, which definitely means aliens on spaceships and absolutely nothing else. Um, No, Uh, could be meteors, space junk, stuff like that. Um, Vandenberg rejected Project Sign's findings, citing insufficient evidence despite uh, the report containing many pa- so many pages that it was a few inches thick. Uh, even more, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer at Ohio State University and a consultant for Project Sign, reasoned that the two pilots had actually just seen a meteor. Um, to help Hynek's case, several amateur astronomers also reported observing several meteors across the United States on July 23rd and 24th. Uh, an astronomer at Harvard noted that it was around the time of the Aquarid meteor shower, and a huge fireball had also been reported over North Carolina and Tennessee two days later. So, I mean, maybe it was just a plane that was almost hit by a meteor, or it was a spaceship an alien spaceship flying with the meteor shower buzzing a commercial aircraft for no reason. Um, you know, but it's interesting, you know, it's interesting like that, you know, airplanes flying. I'm surprised that honestly does not happen more often, you know, airplane, you know, like taking a red eye back, you know, during one of these meteor showers and how planes like a, a plane hasn't gotten hit by a meteor. Like, I don't know. I feel like that's got to happen at some point, right? And that's a new fear to unlock. You know, <laughs> you're taking your red eye back from Vegas and all of a sudden you end up crashing over Oklahoma or Arkansas because you just got, you know, a meteor blasted through the fuselage of your plane. Um, I don't know. Who knows? Um, our next story here uh, is of George Gorman, who was a World War II veteran and second lieutenant of the North Dakota National Guard. And on October 1st, 1948, Gorman was flying a P-51 Mustang on a cross-country flight with other National Guard pilots. Um, As the group arrived in Fargo, Gorman decided to practice his night flying and just carried on alone. Uh, The skies were clear. Gorman noted that he saw lights from a high school football field and a Piper Cub uh, plane below him, just a smaller, like, single seat, like, kind of, you know, crop duster type thing. Um, but then Gorman saw something else, a blinking ball of light that looked nothing like the planes, uh, the lights from the Piper Cub below him. So he radioed into the tower at Fargo's airport to see if there was anything else on the radar. Uh, the tower answered that it was just him and that Piper Cub plane. And just to make sure, the tower radioed to the Cubs pilot, Dr. A.D. Cannon, who then reported the same object that Gorman was seeing. So we've got two people seeing the same thing. Uh, Gorman told the tower that he was going to investigate and sped off towards the object. But despite reaching his top speed of 400 miles per hour, the object appeared to be getting away from him. 
Uh, Gorman made a few adjustments and then quickly found himself on a collision course with this object at 5,000 feet. Uh, He zoomed past the object, which appeared as nothing more than just this ball of light. He also realized that as the object increased its speed, the, the light stopped blinking but got brighter. So Gorman turned around uh, to try to make another pass and noticed that the object then just began to climb. He gave chase, but when he reached 14,000 feet, his Mustang stalled. Um, even though the object was still at least 2,000 2, feet above him and still climbing. Um, by now, the object was over the Fargo airport where the uh, control tower and AD Cannon, who was flying that Piper Club, had landed uh, to get a better view. And they were all watching from the ground trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, as After two more attempts to get a closer view, Gorman ended up giving up and returning to the airport. Uh, within hours, investigators from Project Sign arrived and began questioning everyone down there they also checked gorman's plane with a geiger counter and found that it was more radioactive than other planes at the airport very interesting um air force investigators ruled out any other aircraft in the area such as canadian jets or even weather balloons um project sign however uh released their report that contradicted the air force's official official investigation noting that the air weather service had released a lighted weather balloon from fargo 10 minutes before gorman had arrived interesting Um, they also asserted that the erratic movements of the object were actually an illusion caused by gorman's own aggressive maneuvers they also thought that gorman had later mistaken the planet jupiter for the same object and so you know look there the the geiger counter um meter reading is interesting now the one thing that you can used to explain all that is you know there's there's probably nuclear testing going on you probably have nuclear fallout traveling all throughout the atmosphere gorman's up fourteen thousand feet maybe he's flying through nuclear fallout i don't know that's a, that's kind of a stretch i realize that but um you know the weather balloons interesting detail but like how you can't realize that that's a weather balloon is interesting i don't think you misidentify a star because like jupiter Jupiter's big, but it's so far away that it's not nearly going to be the brightest object in the sky on any given night. So um, maybe Mars, but even then you got to be pretty stupid to not realize that you're looking at a star. But so, yeah, no one really knows um, what happened there. It's probably just a weather balloon. And then, you know, Gorman, you know, making a lot of aggressive maneuvers. It's easy to get disoriented and confused. And so that's probably all it was. Um, Our last story here. Uh, took place around 9 p.m. on August 25th, 1951, um, when three professors from Texas Tech University, Drs. A.G. Oberg, W.L. Tucker, and W.I. Robinson, I don't know why their names are just letters, but whatever, um, well, they were sitting in the backyard of one of those professors' homes when they all noticed a series of 20 to 30 lights flying in the sky above them. So now, you know, in three or four years, we've gone from like six to nine lights to 30. Um, they were as bright as other stars in the sky, but flew in a formation as they passed over the yard. When another series of lights passed over them a few minutes later, the professors quickly ruled out any possible meteor. Um, the three men reported the sighting to the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, who then quickly published a story. 
soon after, Dr. Carl Heminger, another professor at Texas Tech uh, and who was the universe, uh, the head of the university's journalism department, um, and, and also three other women all reported seeing the same lights that night. Five days later, Texas Tech freshman Carl Hart Jr. was lying in his bedroom and looking out the window when he noticed uh, another set of 20 lights flying in a V-shape. Uh, he grabbed his 35 millimeter Kodak camera and walked to his backyard, hoping that the lights would come back. And within minutes, two more sets of lights passed overhead and he snapped five different photos. The next day, Hart had those photos developed and he went to the Lubbock Avalanche Journal to share them. He handed them to the paper's editor, Jay Harris, who then agreed to print them, but promised to, quote, run Hart out of town if the photos turned out to be fake. Hart insisted that they were 100% real and was given $10 for his work. Um, And when the story came out, what came to be known as the Lubbock Lights got nationwide attention. Um, After the story came out, the original three professors made several attempts to see the lights again and finally did on September 5th as they all sat in Dr. Robinson's front yard. This time, according to Dr. Grayson Mead, who was also in attendance on that night, the lights were the size of plates, um, smaller than the moon, but gave off a fluorescent greenish-blue color. And the men counted as many as 15 lights uh, this time and said that the sight gave all of them an eerie feeling. Now, because the lights were traveling above a thin cloud, one of the professors was somehow able to calculate that the lights were traveling at over 600 miles per hour. I don't know. Like, I'm not that good at math to figure out how you can do that. Um, Investigators for Project Blue Book, which was the successor to Project Sign, examined the photos. And the project supervisor, Lieutenant Edward J. Ruppelt, released a statement saying that the photos could not be proven to be a hoax, but they also couldn't be proven to be real. So, like, I don't know. I don't like I don't know what the point of saying that is. Um, Ruppel then went down to Lubbock himself to interview the professors and other witnesses. But like, hang on, I want to go back to that because like, I hate, I hate that like type of logic because you're, you're saying you're, you're fooling people into thinking that, you know, more than you actually do. You know, it's like, I can't prove to you that I'm not a murderer, but I also can't prove to you that I have murdered someone. You see what I'm saying? Like, I can tell you that I'm not a murderer. I just can't. I can't prove to you that I'm not, but I also can't prove to you that I have done. So, like, it's just, it's it's so frustrating because that's, that's the kind of logic that the History Channel, like, capitalizes on with these ancient alien shows and all the other alien shows. It's the crazy dude with the hair. Like, that's the same line that he uses all the time. And it's that same logic that that dude uses all the time where it's just like, eh, we can't definitively prove that aliens didn't build the pyramids, but we also can't say for sure that they did, you know? So it's just like, you're saying absolutely nothing. Um, invest. Let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah. So, uh, Ruppelt, he's gone down to Lubbock, Texas to interview the professors and other witnesses. And he concluded that everyone had just simply seen a plot, uh, a flock of plovers, which was this type of shorebird that were flying over the city on their annual migration and were reflecting the newly installed vapor streetlights off of their shiny little tummies. Um, several witnesses backed up this assertion by claiming to see flocks of the birds flying over the city on the same night as the original sighting. But of course, like 
not everyone agreed because like you have these professors who did this math. Birds don't fly at 600 miles per hour. Also, how do you like, cause these plovers, they're not huge birds. They're, they're relatively small in the dead of night. How do they reflect that much light? Cause like, I've never seen a bird reflect light. So like, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't really buy that explanation. Um, William Hams, the chief photographer of the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, went out and photographed the plovers flying at night beneath the streetlights, but could not replicate the same sighting because, yeah, that's crazy. Um, Dr. J.C. Ross, the head of the biology department at Texas Tech and a game warden, um, it's two different people. I kind of said it like he was the head of the biology department and a game warden, but it was two different people. Um, they both disagreed with the plover theory, saying that the birds were flying too low and in groups smaller than those recorded by everyone who reported the sightings. Um, in 1956, Ruppelt himself even admitted that he could not accept the plover theory. Um, he ended up writing uh, in his book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, quote, they weren't birds, they weren't refracted light, but they weren't spaceships. The lights have positively identified as a very, or the lights have been positively identified as a very commonplace and easily explainable natural phenomenon. It's very unfortunate that I can't divulge the way the answer was found. And because Ruppel couldn't divulge what the lights actually were, or how their origin had been discovered, no one knows what the lights actually were. So obviously it was a spaceship. It was aliens, you guys, but I don't know. Maybe that will be declassified at some point, but that is the end of today's stories. All right. So uh, before we, before we get into, you know, the, the last parts of the show, um, I want to provide a little bit more context. So like, unlike last week where I'm highly, highly skeptical of the, the cryptids and everything, I, I do give uh, a little more credit to quote unquote alien sightings and encounters. However, like I truly believe, I truly believe that there are um, other intelligent forms of life in the universe. Right. And that's just statistics. That's probability because once you truly understand how massive the universe is right now, it's just statistically impossible to believe that us as human beings are the only thing to ever have or will ever exist or currently exists in the universe. It's just impossible. All right. So think about this. All right. Um, you know, like we hear the term light years and all of that. And look, I'm not going to be the first person. I'm not going to pretend like I understand how you calculate all of this, but scientists who have a very advanced understanding of math have figured it out and they understand like how far a light year is away. And so a light year is roughly 6 trillion miles. All right. That's a lot. That's a lot. It's a huge distance, but that is the, that is the distance that light particles travel from point A to point B, it's origin point to here. So what does that mean? So like something that is, um, you know, 400 light years away, when we see that light, we are seeing light that was emitted 400 years ago. 
and it's finally reaching here. So that's that's also kind of why people think that time travel is still possible because like let's say for example, let's say that you're on another planet and you're looking at Earth and um you know, you're you're looking at Earth through a telescope. The Earth that you're seeing is the light that was emitted and then however far away you are. So let's say that you're on a planet that's 100 light years away. You are looking at Earth as it was 100 years before. So technically, in theory, you would be seeing Earth, if it's 2022 right now, you would be seeing Earth in 1922. So you would be seeing, you know, the aftermath of World War One. You'd be seeing the, the you know, the big economic booms going on and, and whatever else was happening in, in 1922. So that's, it's weird that you would see that. Now I don't, I, at that point, you know, if you like zoomed in super far where you could see the actual motions and people and everything, I don't know if you would actually see people from 1922 because like at that point, I don't know if like people are emitting light particles or reflecting light particles. I don't know. I don't, at, at that point you lose me. I don't know. But that's why people think that time travel is possible. But here's the thing. All right. The 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 number of stars. All right. So think about this. Like our sun obviously is a star. The sun has planets. All right. Not every star is going to have planets, but a lot of them do. All right. Um our let me see here. Um there are over, you know. 200 or sorry there are over 2 trillion galaxies in the universe all right each of those galaxies contains an average of about 100 billion stars in them all right so in our galaxy the milky way our sun is roughly one of 100 billion stars give or take a few million um in our own galaxy all right so even just in our own galaxy there are other stars and scientists have and astronomers have seen this they've they've discovered this they have proof that there are other planets in our galaxy that orbit other stars all right you take that all right and apply that to the other 2 trillion galaxies in the universe all right so now you know assuming roughly you know 17% of stars in the universe and all of the galaxies in the universe have, you know, that are the size of our sun and have planets orbiting them. That's just, um, you know, kind of the rough estimate that astronomers have so far. When you take the number of sun sized stars in the universe and the percentage of those that have planets, you get an estimated 700 quintillion planets that's a lot of zeros that's three six nine twelve fifteen eighteen twenty zeros seven and twenty zeros seven hundred quintillion planets all right it's absolutely ignorant to assume that one out of seven hundred quintillion planets has intelligent life at any given point in history all right the you know so, you know, look, the odds of us being the only intelligent life uh, in existence in the universe right now is greater than the odds of us being the only intelligent life in the universe at any given point. All right. So whether it happened in the past and those societies died out or whether it happens in the future and societies form and build and, and grow and all of that and get created, whatever it is like, dude, th- this is just so mind bendy 
and mind warping, but like there, that's also the reason why I don't think we're ever going to truly encounter aliens. hundred percent believe that they're out there, but because of the massive, massive distance between each galaxy and each, like there's a de- there's a decent chance that we're the only form of intelligent life in our own galaxy. But to think that, you know, the two trillion other galaxies don't have intelligent life on them is super ignorant, bro. Like there, the odds of that being the case, almost impossible. Right. And so like, and just think about, um, you know, how long it, it would take to get to another galaxy. Like for example, um, our, like the Milky way is roughly 200,000 light years wide, which means it would take you 2 trillion years to drive end to end at interstate speeds. That's how the math works out. All right. Uh, the closest galaxy to us is 2 million light years away. That's the Andromeda galaxy. So, you know, I don't know what the conversion rate is on that 200,000 light years to 2 trillion and then 2 million to that would take a super, super long time. If you're driving at interstate speeds, obviously, you know, whatever, hyperspeed, whatever it would still take, it would still take years. That's the, that's the kind of frustrating thing about the star Wars universe. Like granted, they're just flying to planets in the same galaxy so they can get there a little bit faster, but you know, hype going hyperspace and you're just at another planet in 15 minutes. Eh, I don't know if the math works out on that. So the, the thing about it is to keep in mind is that the, the odds of other intelligent life. What if it's other humans, dude? Like how crazy would that be? And look, and you can still be a religious person. Like maybe, maybe God created different versions of like, maybe God had multiple sons, right? And there's like different Jesuses in different galaxies. And you think the Mormons are crazy. I, you know, it's, there's, there's so many different realms of possibility that you can go down that no one has the answers to. But if you think that the people on earth in this giant, vast universe are the only things that God cares about, you're a crazy person and you're ignorant. And that's just a level of egocentrism that I cannot fully fathom. All right. But here's the thing because, uh, and the final point I'll make on this and then we'll jump to the, to the final segment. Um, if, you know, if there are other alien species out there, the odds of them being able to travel to our galaxy to visit us also really small. All right. Like the, it just, the way technique, like they would have to have technology so far advanced from anything we could even mentally wrap our brains around that it's just not, it's just not feasible. You know, it's not impossible, but you know, to think that all of these UFOs are extraterrestrial intelligent life trying to visit earth. Nah, it's, it's just, it's not that it's not going to be the case. You know, earth Earth is not as valuable as you think it is. There are other planets out there with more valuable resources. Earth is not going to be the only planet out there with water or gold or diamonds or whatever else we think is important. You know, it's the, 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 the curiosity and the fascination 
to then try to, you know, visit and colonize a planet with other intelligent life that's so far away from your own planet just doesn't make sense. You know, you're either just going to find it and immediately destroy it just because you can, or you're just going to pass by it and you're not going to bother visiting, you know? So there, there's just, there's a lot of logical reasons why a lot of these UFO encounters are easily explained. And then as we'll see next week, a lot of these quote unquote abductions and interactions are complete crap and, and just a crazy person's ramblings and attempts for attention. So aliens are real, probably statistically speaking. All right. We're just never going to encounter them. We're never going to communicate with them. We're never going to see them. All right. The universe is so big and I cannot properly express to you how big it really is that just we're in our own little corner it's okay we can be antisocial in our own little corner it's okay we can be by ourselves and live our life and just try to try to not destroy this planet which we're doing such a good job with so um just yeah you know that's that's it that's the thing you know, is, is for sure. Aliens are real. I hundred percent believe that. I don't believe any of these sightings were extraterrestrial though. What did we learn? Hey, yeah. What did we learn? Uh, number one, Kenneth Arnold, uh, basically given credit for, you know, seeing the first alien, you know, UFO or whatever. I mean, there are other documented uh, UFO sightings prior to that, but uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting in 1947 really kicked off this craze and this, you know, widespread sighting of a bunch of UFOs, which coincidentally after world war two, when everybody's kind of hysterical and all of that, I don't know, seems kind of strange. All right. Number two. Yeah. Aliens are a hundred percent real. You guys. All right statistically speaking like i don't have proof that aliens are real but statistically speaking it is next to impossible for us to be the only form of intelligent life and intelligent you know using that term real loosely um just it's just not it's just not feasible or realistic to think that we are the only form of intelligent life to be in existence Next week on Our Weird World, we're continuing this alien discussion with uh, five stories about people who claim that they were abducted by aliens. We are going to look at the stories of Samuel Eaton Thompson, Buck Nelson, Reinhold Schmidt, Travis Walson, and Jan Walski. Um, look, you, you, you already know how I'm going to feel about it, so we're just going to have some fun and, and you know, we're going to entertain these stories and you see why they're going to be ridiculous and that they're probably not true. But look, it's fun. It's fun to pretend. All right. It's fun to pretend that we can get abducted by aliens. Sure. Let's let's do that. All right. Thank you all for listening. Keep telling all your friends and keep it weird. <laughs> this is why I'm Shorty, see the drop, asked me what I paid, and I say, yeah, 
I paid a quap? And then I hit the switch that take away the top. So chicks around the way, they call me cream of the crop. They hop in the car. I tell them all about. We hit the studio. They say they like how I record. I gave you black train and I did you wrong. So every time I see them, they tell me that's their song. They say I'm the bomb. They love the way the charm hanging from the neck and compliments the arm, which compliments the ear. Then comes the gear. So when I hit the room, the shorties stop and stare, start to hate, rearrange their face. But little do they know I keep them things by waste. Side I reply, nobody gotta die. Similar to Lil Wiz, cause I got the fire. This is why I'm hot. This is why I'm hot. This is why, this is why, this is why I'm hot. I'm hot cause I'm fly. You ain't cause you not. This is why... This is why, this is why I'm hot.